Hey, Pastor Bobby here. I'm so glad you're joining us to hear what God is sharing with our community here at Chapel. And I pray, I am praying right now for you, that this message will bless you. It'll be an inspiration to you. It will challenge you to be who God has called you to be and to do what God has called you to do. And so as we jump into the message, I pray that you open up your mind to God's word, open up your heart to God's spirit, and watch the two come together to bring a supernatural miracle in your life. So let's jump into what God is speaking to us right now. Well, good morning, Chapel. How's everybody doing this morning? Well, I had the joy and privilege of going to the great promised land of Silicaga this past Thursday. And those of you that laugh, it's because you've been there before. So RJ was in the state tournament, uh, and so we went to Silicaga Thursday in the heat and sun, and uh, they won a couple of games, then came up short yesterday, so they came back home last night. Um, we have a team in Haiti right now. They left Friday at 11 a.m., um, and our team was cut in half, so it was a team of 15. It was a team of about 35 that included some minors. What happened was, beginning of the year, the threat level in Haiti, our State Department, the U.S. Embassy there, increased or elevated the threat level from a 2 to a 4. And so what that means is that a 4, that the U.S. Embassy cannot request help from America to send help in, our personnel, emergency personnel, security, medical, stuff like that. And so uh, we gave the team an option to either back out of the trip or continue to go um, because we don't believe that we're called to play it safe, we're called to go. Um, and sometimes that means risk involved. And so, but all the minors, uh, we canceled their trips. So it's a team of 15. This morning they are worshiping at our campus in Haiti, at Chapel Haiti for the very first time, which is awesome. And then tomorrow morning, they will, they will be at the school ministering to the kids. Many of you guys have sponsored those children, um, so taking gifts. We're going to build out the school to increase their capacity and to make sure we can add, keep adding a grade level every year so all those kids can actually graduate from school. And so that is a huge, huge deal, and I'm excited. I'll be flying out this afternoon to meet them there. We also took suitcase, suitcase, suitcase loads of dresses that our sewing team had made to take to the kids as well. So give them a big round of applause. It is, it is really cool. Uh, like when you realize that most of these kids don't have shoes, they may have one or two outfits that are leftovers from other families or other kids. And for them to get something new is a big deal. And these dresses they make are not just dresses like leftover. These are beautiful, amazingly well put together dresses. And these kids light up when they receive them. And it gives us an ability, one, to add value to them as a person and as a child, but also communicate to them the love of Jesus in the same exact way. So big thing. Another big thing coming up starting August 4th. Everybody say August 4th. August 4th. We are altering or adjusting our worship experience times. So the reason for that is... Uh, this service runs about 175 to 225 people. Second service runs usually 375 to 450. And at that 450, our parking lot is pretty much capped out. This room gets really full. It's hard to find seats. But also our kids ministry is maxed out. And so if you, don't, if you remember about two years ago, we renovated the kids ministry um, to increase capacity there. And we've already outgrown that capacity in that service. So what that looks like right now is in this service in kids ministry, there's about 20 to 30 kids in kids ministry. Second service, 1045 service, there'll be anywhere from 120 to 130 kids. And so we're trying to find ways, we've looked, me and the elders and the staff looked at ways, what are the best ways, one, to increase the capacity because God is obviously growing our church. Uh, I meet new people every single week, new stories, people excited about what God is doing here. And so we see what God is doing, and we want to make sure he can keep trusting us with the people he wants to send us. So one, we want to make sure we create opportunities for God to send people here. But two, we want to steward God's resources well. I'm not the type of leader that just wants to build buildings to build buildings. Buildings are my last priority in my life. Last and so what we come up with, we looked at a couple different options just so you kind of know how we think. We looked at, you know, what if, you know, we renovate the balcony because in, in second service, there's quite a few people in the balcony, which is very hard to see, very hard to hear. It's, it's obviously very outdated up there as well. Um, there's handicap space issues as well. So we looked at renovating it, which would cost quite a bit of money to increase that capacity there, but it also wouldn't solve the issues in kids ministry. We looked at increasing capacity in this room um, by, by changing the pews out the chairs, which would increase our capacity by about 150 to 200 people. 
people, but again, that wouldn't fix the issue with the kids' ministry. We looked at the parking lot, you know, increasing space there, but also it doesn't increase the capacity in kids' ministry. So what we come up with for the best solution to steward God's resources well, which means it doesn't cost any money, uses what he already has given us, but also increased capacity is adjusting those times from 9 and 10.45 to 9.30 and 11.15. And I know what you're saying. It's just 30 minutes. 30 minutes is a big deal when you have three or four kids you're trying to get to church. Amen. And so the whole goal of this is actually to balance out the kids' ministry area. If we can split that, get that a little bit more balanced, it'll help alleviate a lot of the issues and problems we have in our church. Because right now, that service in kids' ministry is not equivalent to the 10.45 a.m. service because of the numbers. And so we tried this at Easter, and at Easter, actually, the 9.30 was our larger service compared to the 11.15. It was actually 9.30, 11.15, then 8 o'clock was the shortest or the lightest. And so I need you to do a couple things. One, I need you to just pray that we can stay in unity during this transition. I know it's not a big deal, but any change is a big deal. Um, pray for unity and just pray for wisdom as we navigate this. Two, pray about which opportunity is best for you, 9.30 or 11.15. If you say, you know what, when we go out to eat afterwards, maybe you can schedule breakfast on Sunday mornings. Meet at Jack's at 8.15, 8.30, get filled up with biscuits and be all sleepy during worship. Um, but also, this is gonna increase our need for champions or what we call volunteers here at chapel. And so what that means is we're going to have opportunities at 9.30 and the, and the 11.15 for more kids workers since we are increasing that space. Uh, and so what that means is you have the opportunity to step up into what God is doing. Step up and serve kids and make a difference in kids' lives. That means rocking babies, praying over babies, maybe uh, sharing, loving on kids, encouraging kids, maybe teaching that, but also ushers and greeters as well for both services. So we'll roll out some of those details in that as well. So a lot, God is doing a lot of good stuff. And actually, in July, we have a lot of big announcements coming up about what God is doing here at chapel. So if you have your Bibles, turn to uh, Exodus chapter 34 and Judges chapter 6. Exodus chapter 34 and Judges chapter 6. I don't know about you, but in our household, uh, I can say this because Toya's not here. She's in Haiti. She can't even watch a live stream. Is that the older Toya gets, the more she begins to act just like her mother which for me is a very scary epidemic. She does things, she says things, she, she acts a lot like her mother. If I tell her that, she gets upset, she gets mad. But the kids recognize it, I recognize it, but I also recognize that I'm beginning to act a lot like my father. I actually begin to look a lot like my father. And I feel like the older we get, we start to see some of those nuances and some of those patterns in our lives that reflect our upbringing. I think for the first years, we have enough energy, you know, from about 13 to, to, to 40, we have enough energy that we can kind of mask it and cover it up. But after 40, you're just tired of pretending and you just realize, I am my dad. I am my father. So it's so, I think it was last year, the year before, after Wednesday night service, we were driving home. And so growing up, like, my household was rough. I remember my dad would pick me up from basketball practice and, and he'd be like, I don't think my dad owned a shirt for like 20 years. Like, he ate dinner with no shirt on. He picked me up from school with no shirt on. I'm like, Dad, like, can you put your shirt on? He's like, I'm hot. So he worked construction. He'd wear his work pants, his jeans, his boots, and he'd never have a shirt on. If he had a shirt on, it was a Marlboro shirt he got with Marlboro Miles. And so he'd pick me up from basketball, just like that musky from working, cigarette in his mouth, no shirt on, pick me up, I'd get in the car, and we'd ride. Everywhere I went, riding with the window just cracked just a little bit, just enough to get the ashes out of the window. So my kids have a totally different experience in life. And so one Wednesday night after service, we were driving home and the kids were asking questions like, what was it like growing up a peepaw? And I was like, it was crazy. So I started telling stories. And I was like, you know what? If I was peepaw, I wouldn't have a shirt on right now. So I actually took my shirt off in the car to try to let them relive the experience. <laughs> So I took my shirt off and I started acting like I was flicking ashes out of the car and I turned on all the old 70s and 80s rock music and I'm driving down the road acting like I'm smoking, throwing ashes out the car. So they're loving it. They think this is the coolest, funnest, amazing story they've ever heard. We get home. I'm talking to Toya. The kids are there. RJ's not in the room. RJ comes out without his shirt on, (laughs) flicking his ashes in front of Mama. So mama says, what are you doing? 
He's like, I'm Peepaw. He's like, where did you learn that from? And now I realize I'm like my dad. He's going to be like me. All the things he gets on my nerves about are things I would, done, would have done when I was his age. And I realize there's a pattern there. And I think all of us, if we really paid attention to our lives, there's patterns that you would recognize if you slowed down and really paid attention. That most of us, our, our homes, our families, our friends, our environments, our upbringings have actually been incredible influences in our lives for the good or the bad. Like a lot of us, I wouldn't say we're the byproduct of, but they are very strong influences of how we act, how we live, how we love, how we respond, how we make decisions, how we choose uh, jobs, how we choose careers, how we choose relationships are all based on these patterns that have developed from our upbringings. And so in the Bible, it's very clear that this is a scriptural, spiritual principle that many of us overlook when it can dictate our futures and our destinies, but it also can be the greatest blessing we've ever had. So if you would stand to your feet as we read Exodus chapter 34 together. I'm actually going to read mine from my iPad this morning. It says in, in verse 6 and 7, it says, Therefore, or the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love, I love this part, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting, visiting, everybody say visiting, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Meaning, he's, the, the sin of the fathers will visit his kids and his grandkids. There'll be consequences that come from the iniquities of moms and dads that passes on to their kids. But again, in the first part, those who love God, he's a gracious God. He, he's a forgiving God. He's a merciful God. He's a loving God. That will also be passed on or transferred from generation to generation as well. Father, we thank you that you are a God of family. And we thank you that you have intended for family to be the greatest blessing on earth. But we also know the enemy has looked to break the family down and allow for the family to be the greatest curse that anyone could ever experience with pain, with brokenness, with division, with sin, with frustration, with abuse and with violence and with addiction. And right now, Father, I pray that you open up our eyes to the patterns that are in our lives that stem from either one of these. Father, for those that are blessings, so we can thank you for the blessings we've received from those that went before us. That, Father, we can worship you out of those blessings. And, Father, for the curses or those negative areas, that we can break those strongholds and begin to create a new generational pattern for our families. And so, Father, we thank you, we bless you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. So depending on your background, the word generational curse Maybe a, may have been talked about in church or may have just been overlooked. But most of that, that terminology comes from this scripture and Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. And so a lot of it has a very mystical component, meaning, you know, there's this underlying spiritual component that is dictating what is going on in your life right now. Meaning there's some underlying spiritual thing that, that some forefather or ancestor opened a spiritual door that is now resulting in everything going wrong in your life right now. I, I, I tend to kind of stray away from that a little bit. It's a little too mystical for me. And so this week I was, I've been praying about this message and our staff, we get together every Tuesday and we'll have prayer time. And during prayer time, I was just asking God to really give me a definition of what what he and how he sees the generational blessings and cursing. This is the definition. Generational curses and blessings are patterns transferred from one generation to the next, influencing our lives in positive or and negative ways. Meaning these generational curses or these blessings are nothing more than patterns that have developed in our family lineage that result in positive Directions are positive influences or in negative influences. 
Meaning everyone in this room has patterns that have been implemented and modeled in your life. And every one of those patterns has a positive result or a negative result. Some we'd call blessings, some we'd say are cursings. And a better word for curse there would be strongholds. So instead of a curse, meaning we think it's some magical witchcraft, there's a curse upon your life, it's more of a pattern that is a stronghold, meaning a stronghold in the Greek, the word actually means fortify. Means if it's a blessing, it's a fortified area of blessing, like faith, like maybe how to handle finances, maybe how to love your spouse, maybe how to raise your kids. Those are fortified, meaning reinforced patterns of good. But another definition of stronghold, fortified, is a prison, meaning this is a fortified area that is keeping you captive in a certain area of your life. Meaning this curse, it may not be completely spiritual, but it is a place in which in your mind is protected from you breaking out of it. Meaning you're captive to this pattern that your dad or your granddad, your great-granddad, your mom, your great-grandmother, your grandmother, your cousins, your siblings, that they've trained you or set a direction or pattern in place that now is protected and you know it's protected because you say things like, well, that's just the way I've always done it. Well, it doesn't look like it's quite working out for you. Well, that's the way my mama did it. Well, that's the way my daddy did it. Well, you know, I grew up Church of Christ, or I grew up Baptist, or I grew up Pentecostal. That means now what you just said is that is now a protected area, and it can never change. And these generational curses are areas that we surround with these walls, and we say, this is what it is, and it cannot change. And it cannot change, therefore you'll stay in the same pattern, just like a plane that's out of gas, that's flying over the runway. It stays in a holding pattern, never arriving to its destination. There are so many people that God has tried to call them out of their strongholds. But you're so caught up and held captive by this place of thinking or faith or love or behavior or action or wisdom or knowledge or pursuit of God that you've been in a holding pattern most of your life. God has called you to a destination. God has called you to peace. God has called you to hope. But you just keep flying around the airport of hope because you've set captive your mind in a certain area. There's patterns of faith that your parents had set a pattern of what faith looks like in your life. There's patterns of thinking. Your family has set a pattern of what it means to think, a mentality. There's patterns of, of behavior and there's patterns of pain that we've all seen in our families that determines how we respond to those and those can be handled many different ways. I believe these patterns can, can be in multiple ways. One, it can be by nature. I mean, these patterns develop because of your DNA or your genetics or your biology. Diabetes, cancer, cystic fibrosis. Look at a lot of our diseases, they're genetic. Look at a lot of addiction, it's genetic. You start looking at a lot of things that we look at as curses in our world and they're passed on from one parent to their children through their DNA. Even science, that's what a spiritual curse may be. And science is actually caught up and used to, even Darwin, and some of this actually refutes evolution to the T, that we look at DNA determines everything. Like this is your DNA, that's who you are, it's who you're going to be. They've actually found a layer above DNA called epigenetics. Everybody say epigenetics. Now you're a certified doctor, congratulations. <laughs> Epigenetics, which is a layer of basically cell knowledge above DNA that gives direction to the DNA on how the DNA will perform or multiply. So with these epigenetics, what they found is those epigenetics actually change based on the behavior or the actions of the parent. So much so, here's how they researched it. They researched, they took some mice and they put the mice in this certain little like research area. 
and they would put in a fruity smell into that area. And when they put in the fruity smell, they'd put small shocks on the floor. So when the mice smell the smell, their feet would get shocked. So they put that smell with pain. So when I smell the smell, I feel the pain. So then when they started smelling the smell, regardless if they shocked their feet or not, they experienced the pain. Ten days later, they let those mice mate. When they mated, they put the baby mice who had never smelt the fruity smell or never seen the research ever, when they walked in to the research area, when they put the fruity smell in, they all went into pain with no shock. Not only did that happen, they multiplied or mated those baby mice, so a third generation put them into the same research area. When they smelt the fruity smell, they experienced the pain as well, even though there was no shock. Meaning to the third or fourth generation, just like Exodus 30 tells us. What that means is your parents can experience a pain in their childhood. And if it's undealt with or behaviors in their childhood or their upbringing, that they could actually pass along in your DNA. Some of the pain you're experiencing may not even be real. It may be genetic. It could be that these patterns are passed on through your environment or through nurturing. Like you were trained, you were disciplined, you were taught, you were parented to have these patterns in your life. And then some of them are spiritual. Some of them come from familiar spirits. I don't know what your background is. I believe right now there's a world that we do not see. I believe there's a spiritual world with angels, with demons, with all kinds of things going on in the spiritual realm. And actually the spiritual realm has more influence than the physical realm does. You may not believe that, but... I've been in this thing enough that I 100% believe the spiritual realm is more real than this physical realm. In the spiritual realm, what happens is your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents could have opened doors by giving permission to spirits that were not godly spirits. They could have gave permission to those spirits through, through sin, through rebellion, through just whatever it may be, and they opened up these doors and they become familiar as they're passed down. Meaning, meaning if your parents deal with a spirit and they don't deal with it, it becomes part of kind of who they are. And if you're raised around this spirit, you never really identify the spirit as being wrong. It becomes a pattern. It becomes familiar to you. In Judges chapter six, the story of Gideon, one of my favorite stories in the Bible, the Israelites are in the promised land. Like, they're in the promised land, but they have no freedom. The Midianites have come in and taken over pretty much everything good that God has given them. And it says that God, they started doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And when they did evil in the sight of the Lord, God turned them over to the Midianites to kind of discipline them and bring them back to a place of love of God. In this scenario, they cry out to God, and God said, I've sent prophets, I've sent people to try to tell you to turn, and you keep on doing the same thing. And then he comes to Gideon, who's in a wine press, It's like a big hole in the ground. He's hiding out, making a loaf of bread, literally his last meal. He's scared the many nights will see him and take it from him and kill him. And in that scenario, God shows up and God says, Gideon, I am with you, you mighty man of God. He starts complaining. He's like, mighty man of God. He's like, if you're God, why have you not taken care of us like you did our forefathers? Why why have you not been with us and, and given us the freedom you promised us? And he starts throwing out all these complaints and victimizing himself. And God doesn't respond. God says, listen, I'm going to help you overtake these Midianites. Fast forward, he makes an altar and sacrifices to God. Then he tells them, I need you to go take the bull and tear down the stronghold. Everybody say stronghold. The stronghold, which is the Asherah pole and the altar to Baal at your father's house. Here's where I want you to connect the dots. One, they're complaining that God is not helping them in their situation. Even though God brought them out of Egypt into the promised land, protected them, took care of them, now they're complaining while they have an altar to another God in his backyard. Gideon's dad has an altar to a God of sex and a God of money in his backyard. And they're wondering why God has taken his hands off of them. Now here's the component. Gideon, this young man who's in the, in the wine press, I'm trying to figure out how long that altar to Baal and that Asherah pole had been there. 
Maybe when he was born, he was born and he's playing in the backyard. What he sees, he doesn't see a swing set or a playground. He sees the Asher pole and the altar to Baal. When he's a teenager, when he comes home, he sees the Asher pole and the altar to Baal. When he's a young adult, he comes home, he sees the Asher pole and the altar to Baal. What had happened was he'd gotten familiar with the spirit that his dad was worshiping because it was around him everywhere he went. It was no longer awkward to serve God, but also worship these idols. That's how a spirit becomes familiar to children. When the parents embrace a spirit, that spirit becomes familiar to the kids and it becomes hard for the kids to break that spirit because it's part of who they are. And many times our patterns have this spiritual component that your parents tried to worship God with their words, but with their hearts, they have a whole nother idol set up in their house. Then the kids grow up and they, they get out of the house, they no longer go to church because they went to church with their parents, but they saw the idols and the altars at home. And they just full out leave God, and now there's a cycle happening of this familiar spirit determining the outcome of the family. It's a terrible place to be. Because we are nothing more than these links in our generational chains. You have your, your parents, your grandparents, you have your kids, your grandkids, your great-grandson, this, that, then you're there in the middle. And you can pass along positive blessings or negative curses. You can have a, an impact where your kids will say, thank God for my daddy. Thank God for my grandmother. Or 50 years down the road, they're thinking, what were they thinking? When you read the story, these genealogies in the Old Testament, you had one king who worshiped God with everything he was, cleared out the altars, the bell, cleared out the idols. The next kid, the next king was kind of complacent where he tried to worship God, but also, you know, be caught up in the world. Well, the next kid was completely far away. He didn't serve God at all. He would take the ark out. Then you have this, this whole genealogy of three generations going from serving God to cursing God. And then it would take a move of God to come in and raise up a new generation who would start the cycle all over. You have the ability to either carry on the blessings your parents have given you to your kids and your grandkids, or you have the opportunity to carry on the curses from your parents into your kids and your grandkids. Or you can be the generation who finally breaks the links in the chains. Somebody, even Doug Poulsen back here, had cancer just a few months ago. When I went and saw him at Lowe's and Fishes where he works, he was telling me, my, my, my mom died of cancer, my grandparents died of cancer, and he went through like five generations he said, I'm just scared. I said, listen, somebody has to be the one to break it. Somebody has to be the one to step up and say, no more. Somebody has to be the one. Identify the pattern and break it. And there's four, I believe, four major areas. Patterns that are transferred from one generation to the next. And my, my prayer for you today is that one, you can identify what has been passed on to you or transferred to you so you can accurately identify the root cause of where you're at in your life right now, but also identify what's going on in you so you can accurately pass on what you want to pass on to your kids and your grandkids. This is a twofold thing. This is ministry to you and ministry to your kids and your grandkids. And if you can get it right, it's a game changer. Number one, each generation will transfer a pattern of thinking, of thinking from one generation to the other. Every generation, we see our parents, how they process. We see how they handle money. We see how they handle decisions. We see how they handle conflict. Every generation trains the next generation on how to think. You have a mentality. It could be a victim mentality. It could be a lazy mentality. It could be a religious mentality. It could be a hopeless mentality. It could be a greedy mentality. There's all types of mentalities, and your mentality comes from those closest to you. 
You've watched them. You've learned how they do things because your mentality is how you see life. How you think is how you see. And so if my mentality is wrong, I'm going to see life wrong. Like a victim mentality, that's the whole point of it. If you think like a victim, you're going to see everything that happens to you like a victim. If you have an overcoming mentality, you're going to see everything that happens to you as an overcomer. I was telling RJ the other day, he was saying something that made an excuse. I said, listen, there's really two types of people in life. There's those that, those that every time something happens to them, they have an excuse on why it's not their responsibility. And those people always stay in the situation they're making an excuse about. Then you have another group of people who take responsibility for what's happening to them and they always overcome and move forward. See, your mentality will determine how you see every interaction you have in life. Actually, in this story with Gideon, when God shows up, and we would all want this encounter. Literally, this is called a Christophany in theology, which is when the angel of the Lord, if you have a, a King James or New King James Version, when it says the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, not an angel, it has the and a capital A. Most theologians believe that it was actually Jesus pre-incarnate. So Jesus shows up in spirit form to Gideon. Most of us would love that. When he shows up, here's what Gideon says. He says, Gideon said to him, please, sir, at least he's respectful. If the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my father's house. What is that? A victim mentality. God shows up, he can't even respond correctly to the presence of God because he's like, oh, if you're God, then why am I going to do this? If you're God, then why am I not seeing the blessings everybody else talked about? If you're God, it seems like you bless everybody else and this little old me is over here with nothing to take. And then God ignores him. God says, go in this might that I'm sending you in. He says, how can I go? I'm of the smallest, weakest clan in Israel. Some of you can never be overcomers because your parents taught you to be a victim. We sing songs of overcoming. We sing songs of power and proclamation. That's coming from your lips, but in your mind is, that's not for me. I'm of the smallest. I'm of the weakest clan. And your parents have trained you, your, your grandparents have trained you to fall into a mentality. Some of it could be religious mentality, but what it does is that mentality creates this box that you see life through. It creates this lens that you see life through, and anything that doesn't fit, you discount automatically. A poverty mentality, a poverty mindset, is I'm always supposed to be this way, so you can have all these opportunities to improve yourself, to make your family better, but you're so locked into this is who I am, this is, I'm always gonna be like this, you're boxed in, you can't see the opportunities and the promises that God brings your way. Like, like I've lived this. Like growing up in poverty, I just always thought I would grow up, I'd work construction like my dad, I would struggle just like my parents, I would be divorced just like my parents. I had this mentality that everything I saw was what I was supposed to live. Until I got saved and I read scripture and I had preachers around me that opened up my mind to incredible heights that this little vision I had was not enough. It's like the old story, a little girl, her mom's cooking ham for, for Sunday dinner, and her mom cuts the end of the ham off and puts it in the, in the little pot, the pan. The little girl asks her mom, she says, why did you cut the end of the ham off? She says, I don't know, that's just the way my mama did it. So the next week, they're at the, you know, grandmama's house, she asked her grandmama, she says, you know, why do you cut the end of the ham off when you put it in the pan to cook it? She says, I don't know, that's just what my grandmother did. 
or her mother did. So she goes to her great-grandmother who's still alive. She asks her, she's like, Grandmama, why did you always cut the end of the ham off when you put it in the pan to cook it? She says, sweetheart, my pan was just always too small. (laughs) Some of you, you've been cutting off promises of God because you thought your pan was too small. Your parents, your grandparents, we can even get into the things of spirit. You're missing out on the power and the feeling and the assurance and the love of the spirit because you have a mama or a grandmama or a great mama's told you, no, that doesn't belong in this box. You've been trained through religion to cut off parts of the promises of God in order to make it fit what you desire and what you want. And that mentality is killing you. That's why in Romans 12 it says you must renew your mind. You can live off the patterns that your parents and your grandparents, your family have set for you thinking wise, or you can let God change the way you think and renew your mind and set his patterns in place in your life. I'm telling you, every pattern that God sets for your mind produces blessing. Every pattern your parents set for you could be blessings or cursing. But I know with God there is no fail. And that word actually, renew your mind, is like changing the software out on your computer. Meaning you have to take out the thoughts that other people have given you, and you have to take in God's thoughts. Like, that is one of the greatest challenges uh, as you grow long-term in your walk with Jesus. There's things I'm reading. I'm reading an entire book, 400 pages on Psalm 82, verse 1 and 2. It is blowing my mind, but what it's doing, it's opening my mind up, challenging Bobby's thoughts and bringing in God's thoughts, meaning creating a new pattern. Next one, each generation will transfer a pattern of faith to the next generation. Each generation will transfer a pattern of faith. You say, my family weren't in church. My family weren't Christians. Everyone has faith. Faith is nothing more than trust. Everyone trusts in something. Everyone worships something or someone. Every family sets a pattern of faith for their kids and their grandkids. For some, it may be the house of God and walking with Jesus. For some, it may be money and materialism. For some, it may be family. For some, it may be career. For some, it may be hard work. But what that mentality is, is what you place your trust in is where your faith is. What you place your trust in when things get difficult is where your faith is projected. And once you start projecting it that way, it creates a pattern that your kids are going to place their trust in the exact same thing. If you place it in sports, your kids are going to do the exact same thing. If you place it in finances, your kids are going to do the exact same thing. If you place it in family, they're going to do the exact same thing. Everyone has a pattern that they create because everyone has faith in something. Judges chapter 6, verse 25, it says this. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull of seven years old and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has cut down and the asher beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold there with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. Gideon's father had passed on not his faith in God, but his faith in the Asherah and Baal. So much so that after he tears down the altar and the Asherah pole, his dad gets mad at him for tearing down the idols to these gods, but he didn't mind that he'd completely turned his back on Jehovah, the real God. See, your kids can identify where you place your trust better than you can. Your kids can identify where your faith lies better than you can. If you don't teach your children how to follow Jesus, I didn't say how to be a Christian, If you don't teach your kids and your grandkids how to follow Jesus, the world will teach them not to. If you don't teach your children, your family, how to follow Jesus, 
not be a Republican, not be a Democrat, not how to have good manners. If you don't teach your children and your family and your grandkids how to follow Jesus, someone will teach them and show them how to follow somebody else. And it is pivotal. It is pivotal for we, the church, to identify in ourselves which pattern we are projecting to those around us. It is pivotal that we identify where we place our trust. If I can just skirt off, off topic for a minute, I would say this is my problem. I believe the Republican Party and the Democrat Party have stolen the message of faith in America. And I believe more people worship at the altar of the elephant or the altar of the, of the donkey, whatever. I still can't believe they picked a donkey. Uh, donkey more than the altar of God. Why? Because we place our trust in whatever new politicians rising. We place our trust in whatever new bill is being passed. We place our trust in whatever tax break is coming rather than God. I'm not a citizen of America. I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. And if my kids see me paying more attention to Fox News than God's word, there's a problem. If my kids see me talking to other people about politics or sports or football, more they see me talking about Jesus, there's a problem. They will identify where I place my trust because here's what happens. Your current spiritual complacency your current spiritual complacency will be the next generation's spiritual bondage. As soon as you become lukewarm, your children become ice cold. And it is very difficult once someone becomes lukewarm to warm them up again. Because if you've ever been outside, once you get cold, once you get accustomed to the cold, you kind of get comfortable with it. And what we see in scripture is that same generational lineage. One person, David, is serving God. Solomon kind of gets a little lukewarm, and then his kids are gone. Your spiritual complacency today will lead to spiritual bondage tomorrow. Maybe not for you. You may make it. You may be good. You may be in heaven. You may be fine. But your kids are going to live with the consequences of your complacency. Because here's what I've learned. Here's what you'll transfer. You will transform or transfer your priorities, not your intentions. You will transfer your priorities, not your intentions. That word priorities, it only became plural in the 1960s. Priority was a singular, because you can only have really one priority. In our Americanized minds, we had to make it plural because we're like, we, we're multitaskers. No, you need one priority, to love God with everything that you are. Your kids will receive your priorities, not your intentions. You can intend to be a good parent. You can intend to worship God. You can intend to pray. You can intend to disciple your kids. You can have all types of intentions, but it's your priorities that are transferred. The other thing that's transferred is your love, not your obligation. Oh, oh we got to go to church today. Oh, wow, because it's Sunday and we go to church. They're not, they're not going to love God because of that. They're going to pick up your obligation. You will transfer whatever you love. If you love basketball, your kids will probably love basketball. If you love football, they'll probably pick up football. If you love music, they'll probably pick up music. If you love God, they'll probably pick up God. But they're not going to pick up your intentions about loving God. So much so in Deuteronomy chapter 6. So this way, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Everybody say all. That is a very encompassing word. All, all, all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. He's saying this is what you need to do. Then if you do that, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and that should be as a frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Now, why would he not put, when God was talking to Moses, why would he not say, write them on your doorpost, put them on your forehead, put them on your wrist, talk about them first? 
Because here's the deal. You will talk about what you love. If you love God, you're gonna talk about God. If you love God's word, you're gonna write it down, you're gonna talk about it. He's saying, when you love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, you're gonna be talking about it with your kids. You're gonna be teaching it to your kids. You're gonna have it on the doorpost of your house. It's gonna be written all over your face. When you love somebody, you want the whole world to know. When you love somebody, you want everybody to experience the same type of love. There's a problem when we talk about something, but we don't actually love it. My dad had a phrase, I don't know if your dad had it. He would tell me, do as I say, not as I do. Do as I say, not as I do. What he was saying was, I can smoke, I can drink, I can do this, I can do that, but you can't do it. And in my teenage years, I'm like, if you can do it, I can do it. I can just do it better. What he didn't realize was, it's not your words that are transferred, it's your actions. Your actions create a pattern or a model, not your words. It's not your intentions to be a good parent. It's how you actually live. And so many of us, we say we love God. We say we're going to worship. But our actions between Monday and Saturday teach something totally different. And the scripture is actually saying, it doesn't matter what you worship like in church. Are you writing it down in your house? Are you talking about it at the dinner table? Are you talking about it on Monday? Are you talking about God on Tuesday? Because if you love him, it should just overflow out of your heart. Third, the next thing is going to be transferred from one generation to the next is a pattern of behavior. Talking about my dad, it's not your words that are important. It's what you do that set the pattern. There's a behavior that is patterned or taught to you or modeled in front of you that will determine pretty much how you're going to act or respond. I read this week, and it was an old webinar I was in. It said, you will be like the five people closest to you. Psychology shows the five people you're the closest to will determine pretty much who you are. Well, a lot of us don't have a choice. If we grew up in a family of five, those are your five people. Now that you grow up, the five people you surround yourself, they actually said, you can identify probably what your weight is based on the five closest people to you, what their weight is. They said, if you look at the five people close to you, your income is probably all averaged out quite the same. I would say your spiritual pursuit, whatever the five people closest to you, their pursuit of God is, that's probably the average is probably what yours is. What that means is the people you surround yourself with actually start determining the patterns of behavior in your own life. And so you have this pattern that's been carrying over since you were a child of what is right, what is wrong, what is holy, what is unholy. And if you don't recognize that pattern, you'll stay in that pattern probably for the rest of your life. First Kings 15.3 is one of the kings and it said, and he walked in all the sins that his father did before him. That means his dad had set a, a direction and a pattern. All the boy did was follow in his daddy's footsteps. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord as his God, as the heart of his David, his father. Meaning, where you're walking right now will determine where your kids walk. And actually, you're probably walking in a path that your dad or your mom or your, your grandparents actually walked before ahead of you. When I first got saved, a great friend of mine Older gentleman, he said when he first got saved in, in the 70s, he said he went to a bar. He said, I wasn't drinking. I was good. And he said, God told him, he's like, don't go anywhere. You wouldn't take your kids. Don't go anywhere. You wouldn't take your kids. And then when I heard that all my kids were young, and I thought to myself, that is good advice. If they're following in my footsteps, why would I ever go somewhere I wouldn't take my kids to? Why would I ever watch a movie I don't let my kids watch except for Tombstone? Why would I ever listen to music? And to be honest, when our kids are younger, like, I'm a hip-hop junkie. Like, I grew up in the 80s and 90s, like, a little side piece. I was actually in a rap group in, in the late 90s, right? So I'm a hip-hop junkie. And I'd have these flashbacks. I just want to hear the song. Listen to the song, even though the kids were in the car, and Toy's like, would you let your kids listen to that? I'm like, no. But, you know, this is a flat. Then I try to justify it. Why would I create a path and then tell my kids, I, I know this is the way I'm leading you, but don't come this way. See, I had set a pattern of behavior. Some good, some bad, some right, 
some wrong. Even Gideon, chapter 6, verse 1, they did evil in the Lord's sight. There was a pattern that was set before them. You in this room, there's patterns that have been laid out for you. I remember when I, right before I got saved, I remember looking in the mirror thinking, I have become just like my parents. My mom's an alcoholic. My dad was a junkie. I'm going through all these things. I'm looking, and the things I said I would never do, here I am the same exact way. Why? There was a pattern that was playing out, and I wasn't smart enough or saved enough to realize the pattern and break the pattern. You know, if you want to change the solution to a problem, you can't just change the answer. If you got two plus two, and you're getting four, and you don't like four, you want to get six or seven or eight, you can't just change the eight. You have to change one of the variables. See, because the, the problem, the pattern, is what creates the outcome. We live in church world. We all want to change the outcome without changing the pattern. You want to live your life however you want to, then come to the altar on Sunday, get prayed for, boom, leave and think the problem's going to change. The problem is determined by the pattern. If you want the problem to change, if you want the outcome to change, you must break the pattern and change the variables. And some of us are living off because here's what I've learned. Whatever I tolerate, I endorse. Get this. Whatever sins in my kids, I tolerate. Whatever sins I tolerate in my own life, I endorse them to the people who are watching me. Meaning, if I don't confront it, I'm actually celebrating it. I'm not talking about out in the, the, the gay pride week in Florence, because judgment begins in the house. God is their judge. I'm talking about in me. Whatever I tolerate in my life, I'm endorsing into my kid's life. Whatever I tolerate with my kids and I don't discipline, I endorse in their life. And a lot of us are endorsing things we would never want to see in our grandkids or great-grandkids. Whatever you tolerate, you will transfer. People say, what's your stance on drinking? No. <laughs> and everybody's like, oh, that's the, why? Because what one, one generation does in moderation, the next does in excess. And if I'm so selfish to only worry about what I can do, not thinking about the ramifications that has on the people who are following me, I've missed the whole point of Romans 14 where it says, don't just do this out of your own self ambition. Remember, you're a witness to others. I'm not living my life to get the most pleasure possible. I'm living my life to make an impact for the kingdom of God, not just now, but from generation to generation. I want to see my kids and my grandkids be blessed because of how I live my life, not just mediocre. Well, there's nothing wrong with a glass of wine. There may not be nothing with a glass of wine. But when you drink a glass of wine at dinner, then your kid is drunk and in rehab when they're 22 years old. Don't come back asking for prayer. You have a choice now to create a course of prosperity and blessing and destiny and hope and purpose as you live your life on purpose in front of the people in front of you. I'll never forget. This one I realized I was probably white trash. My, my dad was... Coaching my brother's baseball team, I'm like 16, 17 years old, I'm a young punk. And there's a kid on my dad's baseball team whose dad thinks he was like the greatest player ever to play baseball, which means he's probably not that good. After the game, I don't know what happened, I just showed up to watch my brother's game. After the game, this dude like calls my dad out of the dugout and he's like trying to get toe-to-toe -to -toe with my dad, right? So, and my dad, my dad's a manly man, tough guy, but I was like, that's my dad. I was like, he ain't going to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with my dad. So I remember, like, I just showed up the game. Like, I just pulled up. I just go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the guy. I'm like, you ain't going to talk to my dad like that. And I'm toe-to-toe. -to -toe. Then my dad grabs me and about whoops me out there. I'm like, dad, I was trying to help you out. He said, you're not grown, boy. And I remember, now, look at this. I'm thinking, my dad had set a pattern of violence. And now I was walking out that pattern. Some of you in this moment need to you need to look at your life. You need to identify which behaviors your parents tolerated that are now a pattern of behavior in your life. Things your parents did, the things your parents didn't correct, that now are causing curses in your life because now you've endorsed them. 
Then you need to look at the sins you're tolerating in your own life and ask yourself, would you want that to be multiplied in your kids, your grandkids, and your great-kids' life? Because you will transfer the patterns of your behavior. And the fourth thing is you will transfer from one generation to the next patterns of pain. Patterns of pain. It's not a matter if you're going to experience pain in life. It's a matter of when you're going to experience pain. You read the Bible, it's all about pain and how we deal with pain, how we overcome pain, how we respond to pain. Everyone in this room has experienced pain in some level. And there are patterns that develop on how to respond to pain. We see abuse, domestic abuse, domestic violence. Usually it goes from one generation to the next to the next. They've actually learned in little kids two years old that grew up in violent environments, before they even know what violence is, they're already violent because there's a pattern that's been in play. When pain happens, how do you respond? Do you respond as a victim or an overcomer? Do you respond as a complainer or a praiser? See, from a godly point of view, when I experience pain, that pain can be a platform for God's glory or a prison for my captivity. You get offended, you get betrayed. I can either use that to display God's glory through forgiveness or I can use it to hold myself captive in that moment in that pain. And what happens is everyone watches how you respond to pain. And how you respond to pain is actually teaching your kids and your grandkids and your closest friends on what is the proper way to deal with pain. We live in a day and age where we feel like we're supposed to respond to pain through social media. Through you need to know what I'm going through. You're trying to draw sympathy to yourself instead of taking those stones of pain and building an altar under the Lord. You see this with divorce. Your parents go through a divorce, which is difficult anyway, and both parents are sharing with their kids how bad their mom or their dad is. Out of this pain that they've experienced from betrayal, maybe affair, infidelity, they have this pain and they're sharing that with their kids. One, kids don't have the emotional maturity to handle that. Two, kids need to be able to honor their mother and father. They can't do that when one parent is trying to pull them away from honoring them. Three, we see the second generation, especially nowadays, people aren't getting married at all. If they get married, they wait till they're 40 after they've lived together for 15, 20 years. Why? Because their parents have transferred their pain of marriage to them. Why would kids get married when their parents told them how terrible marriage was? Why would people try to give their life to somebody else when they've seen their parents take life from each other? See how we we transfer pain. See, either pain will be transformed or transferred. All pain. You will transform it into purpose or you'll transfer it into somebody else. Somebody's a gossip, it's just untransformed pain. Somebody's, Somebody's hateful, They're hurting, and they haven't transformed that pain through Jesus yet. They're transferring that hurt to other people. All pain is going to be transformed or transferred. Patterns of transfer happen when we don't deal with it correctly. Here's the good news. God wants to be your father so he can create patterns of blessing in your life. Exodus 34, that's the whole point. If you'll just let me be your God. You'll have these blessings that go from generation to generation. Merciful God, forgiving God, loving God, enduring God, all these amazing things. What he's saying is, I know that maybe you have some messed up patterns in your life. That's why I want to give you some new patterns. That's what he says. I know your your family name may be ruined. He says, I want to give you a new name. I want to give you a new way of thinking. I want to give you a new hope, a new future, a new purpose. See, God recognizes the patterns and he says, listen, I want to bring you into my family and let's create a new pattern together in your life. But here's, what, here's the difficulty. Just like with Gideon, strongholds do not fall by themselves. And these patterns are strongholds. You're not going to wake up one morning and the stronghold be gone. You're not just going to come to the altar one day and the stronghold is gone. Gideon had to go, he had to tear it down. 
Not only did he have to tear it down, he had to cut it down. It was work. He had to work on it. He had to struggle with it. He had to strive for it. He had to sweat through it to tear down these strongholds, these strongholds of faith in your life, these strongholds of thinking in your life. They will not pass on their own. Somebody has to be the Gideon. Somebody has to walk in and start tearing down the strongholds. Then, after you tear the strongholds down, then you build an altar right there on top of it. Gideon built the altar of the Lord right on top of the stronghold. The wood he burned for the sacrifice was the wood from the Asherah pole. You have to take what the enemy meant for evil and let God turn it to good. But it takes courage. As a matter of fact, Gideon went at nighttime to tear down the stronghold because he was afraid. Which means courage builds over time. But there's many of you in this room, somebody has to be the one to stop the patterns. Somebody has to be the one to tear down the stronghold. And somebody has to be the one to build an altar because your kids, here's the pattern. You're going to transfer patterns of strongholds or patterns of altars in your life. Altars are these trophies, these places of memorial we remember what God has done. Strongholds are places where we remember what God has not done. You have the choice. If you would, bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment. Everyone in this room has patterns that have been developed in your life. Either from your mother, your father, whoever raised you, adopted parents, step-parents. We can call them blessings, we can call them cursings, but I believe there are patterns that have been transferred from one generation to the next that are producing either positive or negative results in your life right now. If you look back upon your past, there's a pattern. They're actually determining things right now in your present day. There's a pattern, and they have the potential to affect our futures If the pattern continues, it's going to repeat and create the same thing it's already created. Unless you begin to change the pattern. So right now, with every head bowed, every eye closed, one private moment in this place. Two questions. First question is this. I'm going to have you stand up right where you are. I'm not going to have you come down front. I'm just going to have you stand up. He said, now I recognize patterns that have produced curses in my life that come from my parents or my grandparents. Ways of thinking, ways of religion, behaviors, pain, anxiety, addiction. And right now I realize those patterns are creating the result that I see in my life. And today I just want to ask God to help me tear down these strongholds in my family and in my life. If that's you, I just want you to stand to your feet real quick, right where you are. If you would, I just want you to raise your hands towards heaven. We're just inviting God. Father, we love you. And we thank you right now. Just like we get in, you came and found him in the deepest, darkest place he could possibly be. And Father, we realize today that that was a result of the patterns his dad had put in place. Through the oppression of the Midianites, he'd felt the anxiety, he'd felt the fear, he'd felt the worry. And Father, right now we realize you saw the pattern and you helped him break the pattern. Father, for every person in this room right now who's standing up, Father, we break the patterns of false faith in their lives. We break the patterns of pain that have been produced in their life, pains of abuse, pains of addiction. We break the patterns of behavior, of sinfulness. Father, we break the patterns of, of frustration. We break the patterns of, that have carried on since their parents and their grandparents that are producing the negativity in their lives today. And so, Father, I pray that you give them the courage to start tearing down the strongholds in their minds, in their hearts, in their spirits, in their relationships, and in their lives. Father, empower them with your sweet spirit. So, Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. You may be seated. Everybody else, head bowed, eye closed. If you said right now, I realize I'm tolerating patterns in my own life that I do not want to see transferred to my kids. I do not want to see it transferred to my grandkids. Behaviors I've tolerated to myself, ways of thinking that I know are contrary to God's word. 
pain that I've experienced that I have not transformed yet, that I feel like I'm transferring to my kids. Today, I just want to ask God to forgive me as I repent and give me the, the courage to start building altars. My kids can start seeing me worship Jesus through these patterns as I break them. If that's you, I just want you to stand to your feet real quick, right where you are. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. We thank you for your sweet spirit who comforts us, but also convicts us. And Father, we know that what one generation tolerates, we endorse the next. And I pray right now for every single person in this room, that Father, you allow for whatever it is they're tolerating as you've convicted them. I pray, Father, right now, this moment of repentance and confession, that you allow for them to be washed in regeneration by your spirit. You allow for them to feel like a cleansing of their conscience. That, Father, you allow for them to experience a refreshing of their spirit. And, Father, even though their kids have been watching one pattern, Father, let their kids watch a new pattern unfold. Father, from standing at a stronghold to worshiping at an altar. Father, let them be people that are so in love with you, mind, spirit, strength, and body, they talk about who you are. They talk about what you've done in their lives. They hear their story. They hear their heart cry out for you, and they transfer that love into those who are watching them. And so, Father, we bless you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.